I had intended a different message for this evening. And the attended text that I had selected and wrestled over while in Ethiopia in, in the couple of weeks uh, prior to this was from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-13. through 13. And, and I know it's a familiar passage to, to many of you, but it was the, the latter part of the passage that I was going to center our time on. And, but in talking with a couple of individuals and listening to myself, uh, actually apologizing for my passion and intensity and when explaining why I wanted to preach that particular passage, I realized my motive was wrong. And I remembered a time over 30 years ago that I'm ashamed to recall when I preached a sermon with the wrong motive. It was back in my hometown, and Terry and I were in our, we just finished our first full year of seminary, and we had come back to Detroit Lakes, uh, to my hometown, on, on a visit. And our pastor there at the community church, uh, knowing that we'd be home that summer seeing our families, asked if I would preach for him. And I had just finished our Greek exegesis class where we translated, outlined, wrote papers on uh, the book of Philippians. Chapter 2, which I know is a very familiar passage to all of you, uh, particularly spoke to my heart in light of what some people in our church there were doing to the pastor. And uh, a man who uh, had been a mentor to me, uh, one of the men who helped officiate at Terry and I's uh, wedding, uh, and a man who was being treated by people in the church in a way that prompted his wife to say, quote, if my husband were a dog, the people who were mistreating him would be arrested for cruelty to animals, end quote. Some of those people were still in the church that summer, and they did eventually make it so miserable that our friend left and resigned. So I thought Philippians 2, 1 through 11, would be a good cure for some of the sinning saints. And what I learned was this very valuable lesson. When you try to preach at people, you end up afflicting the afflicted and comforting the comfortable. When you try to preach at people, you end up afflicting the afflicted and comforting the comfortable. I didn't change the mind of, nor did I impact those who were causing the trouble in our little church. But it did afflict those whose hearts were broken for our pastor and who were trying to rectify the situation. So I came to the realization that I needed to leave 1 Corinthians 5 alone, maybe alone until maybe shortly before I die, when I'm really old and really slow. I don't know. But. And what I needed to hear, and what I think many others maybe here tonight might need to hear, is the passage we're going to look at. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. And as I have in my notes, obviously, (laughs) it's not so obvious because you don't have the notes, with so many points listed on your outline, there isn't time for an in-depth analysis of the text. And so what I'm proposing to do is what is called, and this is true, this is what is called, if you you look at Merle Unger, um, Kohler, preaching with, uh, expository preaching without notes, Braga, and a number of others, what is called... Um, a running commentary or Bible reading method of expository preaching. Uh, by that, it is the focus is on the text, what, simply what the text says, what it alludes to, more than a structure, finding the main verb, the main idea, the big idea, and then proving that from the text. So it's not an issue of trying to prove anything to you tonight, per se. It is just to lay out the text 
for what is there. And so we're going to look at the parts of the message, the truths in it, and see what precious doctrines are presented. And based on those, as they're synthesized down at the end, um, the so what, I hope, will appear and will leave you and I encouraged. I titled the message, More Doctrine, Not Less. More Doctrine, Not Less. I did this for one simple reason. While it is true, a book on doctrine or a sermon on doctrine can be dry, the onus is not on doctrine, but on the writer and the speaker. I maintain that doctrine is precious, it is practical, and it consists of the primary truths we must understand about God in order to live life. Whether we live that life on bright sunny days or in the dark dreary ones. This passage was part of a course I recently taught to our brothers over in Ethiopia. Classes entitled Homiletic Three, Preaching Sound Doctrine. And the brothers were greatly encouraged by the passage, as was I, and hence I hope it will encourage you as well. So turn with me to First Peter chapter one, and as you turn in your Bibles, just give you a brief reminder of the background and audience of the book, if, if I can. First Peter, um, in First Peter one, one through five, the recipients of this letter were immature believers. We kind of picked that up in chapter one verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 3. We know they're scattered in remote areas of today what would be known as Turkey, or that day Asia Minor. They're under intense persecution. We pick up that in verse, verses 12 through 18 in chapter 4. Some were apparently uh, being persecuted by civil authorities. We see that in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and, but also perhaps by family and friends. Um, and they were, being, they were suffering for doing good. They were struggling to maintain godly, godly marriages. We picked that up in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, about husbands and wives. And they also seemed to lack direction about spiritual leadership in the church in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where Peter exhorts them as a fellow elder and bishop and shepherd. And we know they were anxious about their suffering in this present world, a world dominated by Satan, because we see that over in chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 as well. And I would suggest, as Jim Harris, a friend of ours, and the, the director, well, not the director, but the author of our material in the Antioch Initiative that we're part of, says this. I agree with him when he says, if someone in the modern church wrote to people in those circumstances, the emphasis likely would be on what kind of counseling to seek, exhortations to hold each other accountable to, and how there's much evil we must endure in this world. But Peter's inspired response, however, is much different. In just the first five verses, he lays a strong foundation of sound doctrine. Peter knew the great doctrines of the faith led and lead to the most enduring personal applications, end quote. So what we're going to do is consider his words and for each phrase answer, what doctrine does this relate to and how does this help you and I to know this truth about the truth? that we look at tonight. So as we begin, let me read the text for you, and we'll, we'll come back and, and look at each section of it. So chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so if you get in your mind's eye, if you're in your back of your Bible, you have a, a, a map. It shows you the, the trips of Paul. If you basically take Asia Minor and take the first two-thirds of it, that's the territory he's, he's talking about. And uh, Pontus and Bithynia are up against the Black Sea to the north. Galatia is kind of in the, in the center. Asia is to the far left side of your maps, pointing over towards Greece. 
And he says to them, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, preserved in heaven for you. For you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The very first thing we see in this text, he writes to those who are aliens, who are aliens. This, in this we see the doctrine of adoption. He very clearly points out, you are aliens, you are pilgrims of the dispersion. You've been dispersed throughout this portion of the empire. And so we are beloved. The world is not our home. Paul reminds us of that over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11-13. After that great and wonderful passage about what we were before Christ, how we came to know Christ, and that we're God's workmanship, he says, but you who were far off, aliens, you who had no hope in God, he has brought near by the blood of his Son. Paul picks up this theme over in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and you, we sang part of it in one of, the, one of the hymns tonight, one of the choruses, where he was born under the law to redeem those under the law, right? And that we have received this adoption so that our spirit, the spirit cries out from our heart, Father Abba, to the Lord. Paul speaks of that over in Romans 8, 18 through 15. We're we're in this world, but we're not of this world. And because we're not of this world, we groan as the world groans for its redemption. So we groan in our bodies as well to be redeemed with the Lord. And so we who are strangers, foreigners, aliens, not part of the commonwealth, having, having no claim on anything of God's, he adopts us into his family and makes us his children. Beloved, I know I've mentioned this to many of you before, probably even a sermon. I know I haven't many times a Sunday school class. If you want to get a a little picture of what that's about, watch the old movie Ben-Hur, where Charlton Heston plays the part of Judah Ben-Hur, a a Jew who's wrongly accused by a a Roman, um, who Marcellus, who he grows up with, and he eventually ends up on a slave ship. And in the process, there's a great naval battle, the uh, admiral, the Roman a- admiral, thinks he's lost. He's about to kill himself. So Ben-Hur saves him, smacks him with a chain, knocks him out so he can't kill himself. And then we jump forward a few years in it, and he has become this great charioteer. Remember the great the, the horse race in the whole movie. And in that process, he becomes the best-known charioteer throughout the Roman Empire. And there's a scene in there where at, he's at this banquet, he's going to be presented... And they're, they're honoring him, and Arius, the admiral, no longer considers him a slave but a son, and he, that night, says he adopts him. He takes off his signet ring and gives it to him, basically saying, this is my heir, and everything I own from here on out when I die belongs to him. And they hail him as, hail young Arius. They do it three times, so everybody knows this now is considered the son of Arius, and everything 
the authority, the power, the treasure is at his disposal. Well, that's what God has done for us in Christ. He has taken slaves. He has taken sinners. He has taken those who are so far off, we can't see that far. And he's brought us near in adoption. We are his family. We are his children. When he simply says, you who are far off, right? This is what he's done for us. Secondly, those who are chosen. Here's the doctrine of election. And then when you say that term, some people begin to shudder. Others begin to smile. But it is the word electos. The elect. Elect of God. You can be confident of your ability to endure suffering in this world because Scripture teaches God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.4. He chose you. He chose you. He knows you by name. He knows the hairs on your head and the hairs you used to have. He knows you because he chose you. And since your salvation is a result of a choice made by God, he would have to change his mind, which is impossible because he's immutable, in order for you to lose your relationship with him. And beloved, should that not give you courage to persevere? And me to persevere as well? And notice this election is according to, in relation to, the, full, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's the doctrine of foreknowledge. This is a first cousin to the doctrine of election. In, in this case, the word means to predetermine a relationship. The same thing is said of Jesus Christ over in this chapter, chapter 1, verse 20, who he foreknew Christ. Now this disproves the notion that foreknowledge is just a matter of God peeking into the future and seeing what someone might do. He predetermined the role of Christ, just as he predetermined your salvation. And so as with election, this truth provides confidence to face your suffering by knowing your relationship with God is secure by his will. I mean, think of that. You're far away, which he knew. He chose you and I, and he knows the plan that he has for our life. Fourthly, this is by means of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the doctrine of sanctification, and we see a glimpse of the work of the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, you could say here's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as well. So elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Holy Spirit. See, God supplies the power and the motivation and the enablement by His Spirit for you and I to make choices that lead to holiness, things which in a sense amount to obeying Christ, with regards to obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. You can also see that Peter calls attention to all three persons of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, God the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, Son at work in the life of the believer. The Father, Son, and Spirit on duty. 
We're told by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25, the Son ever lives to intercede for us. And Paul tells us over in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit makes intercession for us. Why? Because sometimes we don't know what to say. We just groan within our own being, and He makes sense of our groanings. He understands us, and He relays those to the Father as a prayer on our behalf. So these three working together in making us more like the sun day by day. Fifth, may grace and peace be yours. May grace and peace be yours. What what is that? That's the doctrine of grace. This doctrine is also an attribute of God. Only by his grace can you come to experience his peace. This, This prayer includes one of the few Greek optative moods expressing a wish. A good cross-reference here would be Romans 5, 1 through 12, right? Which tells us what? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And whereby in this grace you attain, Paul says. And so, we could also mention Philippians 4, 6 and 7 where your position of peace with God turns into practical experience of peace guiding your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul greets him, may grace and peace be yours. Excuse me, Peter does. Sixthly, God does this according to his great mercy. Who, according to his abundant mercy. Right? His abundant mercy Again, an attribute. And it shows that his relationship with him is rooted in his character as mercy is that attribute, an attribute of his as well. Thus his mercy abides with you even when you and I are suffering. So grace, mercy, peace. Even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering. Seventh, God has caused us to be born again, regenerate. The word means to father anew, to bring to birth. Here's the doctrine of regeneration. The wording of this phrase makes it clear that the work of regeneration is solely the work of God. How do we know? This is mentioned again by Peter in verse 23. Having been born again, a perfect passive participle. Passive, which tells us it's not you, somebody else acting on you. Perfect, it remains to this day. Something that has happened in the past with exceeding results to this very moment. Having been born again. And so, beloved, if God has caused you to be born again, it would require again that he changes his will which is impossible for you to fall out of your relationship with him. This adds another layer of confidence to our ability to cope with suffering. Yes, life is hard. It is hard, very hard at times, excruciatingly hard. But God is good. He has caused us to be born again, to be born into his family. And notice we're born into what? To a living hope. Not just born, okay, you're born and there you are. You're left on a doorstep somewhere. But to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to an inheritance 
incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. A living hope. Here's the doctrine of the resurrection, because this hope comes by way of the resurrection. Life now, life later. Even if you die, you're alive. This also alludes to several aspects of salvation. Hope, inheritance, in heaven. Notice it's to an inheritance. Here's the ninth one. An inheritance that is the doctrine of security. How do we know that? You are kept, heiress passive participle, being kept, guarded, being protected by, or kept intact. And three adjectives that are used here. Notice, imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. They emphasize that our inheritance is secure. Imperishable, not subject to decay or death. Right? This is a term Paul uses over in 1 Corinthians when he talks about this perishable body must put on the imperishable body. This that can decay must put on what does not decay. Right? Hence, we get to the idea of undefiled, unsoiled, pure, beyond the reach of decay or change. And it will not fade away. In other words, it is enduring and eternally fresh. This helps provide confidence that persevering through suffering is worth it. Is it worth it to obey? Is it worth, as we sing in the song, trust and obey for there's no other way? to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey, right? And this would tell us it is worth it. This is worth it. The sufferings of this present time, Paul says in Romans eight eighteen, are not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is hard for us, this side of glory, to take all of that in and try to add up what we're seeing. And, and, and on the one hand, here from Paul, you, you know, what is happening here, it's really, it's significant, it, it's real, but in comparison, this short life, in comparison to eternity, the beauty of eternity, the beauty of the new Jerusalem, the beauty of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, the glory of God, be able to see it and not have fear of having your flesh fall off your bones because you've seen God and lived to tell about it? Paul said, no, 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 brethren. This short life, this is a vapor. And it is not to be compared to the weight, the value, the vastness, the immensity of the glory that is to come when we are in heaven Pardon me. Amazing. Amazing. Imperishable. Undefiled. Will not fade away. The markets can crash. Money can become worthless. Your inheritance never will because it's in Christ. Notice the tenth part here. You, you who are kept by the power of God. Here's the doctrine of God's power and providence. 
We're protected. The verse that he used, the, the word that Peter uses here is the one Paul uses back in Galatians 3.23 to speak of those who are under the law. They are guarded by the law, kept under strict control. You're not kept by your power or by my power. You're kept by the power of God and his strength. This, again, is another of his attributes. The, the fact you're protected by the power of God should give each of us confidence to endure, even to the point of death, if necessary. Some of our brethren have found out in these last months in the Middle East, being kept by his power. Yeah, I spoke with uh, an individual in the last few months and thinking about what was going on with ISIS and those who were beheaded for their faith, who had not renounced Christ. And it just seemed like an utter waste to this individual, and it's just, just beyond the scope. But they missed something. You could pick it up over in Acts 6 and 7 when Stephen is about to be stoned by his own brethren. And he looked into heaven and he saw the Son of Man standing. Peter just preached in Acts 2 that he was seated at the right hand of God and had poured out the Spirit, which they both saw and heard. Stephen sees him standing. Why is he standing? He's waiting to receive him. God's not passive. He's not blind to what's going on. It is part of his plan. That may be hard for us to understand. It is part of his plan. And he is not happy that these things are happening. And he, he is not thankful to those who are inflicting this pain, this martyrdom on others. A judgment is coming for them. He is standing as he has stood before them and interceded on their behalf, as Hebrews 7.25 tells us, every day interceding for them, encouraging them on to finish the race because as soon as they close their eyes here, their eyes are open in glory with the Savior. And beloved, because we have never, ever experienced anything like that. It is hard to grasp that and want to hold on to it and embrace it to be true. The, the closest thing I can come to is when you see some of the wonders of the world and you're awestruck and you can't speak because of the beauty of what you see. Even on a wedding day, when we watch, and it's usually right about in this spot, we watch brides walk down this aisle. You ought to look at the face of that guy as he's waiting for that woman to come down the aisle. Well, he sees her. Everybody stands. I can watch the faces. We can watch the faces in the audience. And the look on your face is not typically amused or shocked. Right? It's one of, oh, how beautiful, oh, how wonderful. And he's going like, whoa. And you multiply that over and over and over. You see the falls, Victoria Falls. You see the pyramids. You see the library in Ephesus. You see pictures or renditions of the temple which was one of the seven created wonders of the world. You begin to think of the things that you can see with your eyes and you're awestruck that you can't even speak. And that's not even a thimble worth of what glory will be like. That's why Paul could say this. And that's why Peter can say what he says. 
kept by the power of God. It's not he, he didn't have a power outage when Stephen was killed. He hasn't had a power outage when all the other people have been martyred throughout this century. Right? He knows what is going on. He knows what he is doing. And there's eternal weight of glory waiting for us. And so, yeah, life is hard. It stinks. But there's something far greater coming. Far greater coming. And he protects it for us. There will not be a power failure on his part. You and I will not lose our standing before him. He will welcome us home. And the eleventh truth, through or by means of faith. Here's the doctrine of faith, which, as you know, is part of the doctrine of salvation or doctrine of soteriology. The doctrine of faith. Faith is part of the package of salvation, which is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God gives you the faith you need in order to come to him in the first place. And he gives you faith day by day in order to remain faithful through persecution and trial. Love, the problem is that we lack the resources. We often fail to utilize the resources we are given. And lastly, for a salvation ready to be revealed, uncovered, to be made fully known in the last time. And here's the doctrine of glorification. Who are kept by the power of God by means of faith or through the instrumentality of faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is more about our hope. This is about our heaven. This is about the final stage of our adoption. Romans 8.23. 8.23 tells us that. Knowing that there's something infinitely better awaiting you after this world should give you and I the motivation to endure whatever it is that we face. And so there you have it. There's the 12. I know that's not how Brian preached this passage a couple of years ago when he went through this wonderful book. It's not necessarily what you would see in some commentaries, but the truths in here leap out on the page. And sometimes because we are looking just for the main verb, so we can find here's the one statement and here's all the other things, we, we miss some of the trees that are in this. And so sometimes we hear about doctrine. Oh, doctrine divides. Doctrine is divisive. Doctrine is dry. Look again at Scripture. And see, see the doctrine that is being alluded to. It's not fully developed in this passage, each one of these, but they're alluded to of what God is doing. Election and foreknowledge and adoption and salvation and the resurrection. The power of God. The wisdom and knowledge of God. His grace, His mercy, His peace. They're all here in this text. And so he's laying the foundation for ministering to Christians going through hard times and those enduring persecution. And so what does he do? He goes immediately to the grand doctrines of the faith. And so, beloved, I would submit to you tonight in closing, if we want to help ourselves deal with the most difficult issues of life, 
if we want to help our friends and others to deal with the difficult issues of life that they face and we face, we need to let them know their relationship with God is rooted in His character, and the relationship they have with Him is secure. This is the basis of His teaching. Unless God changes His mind, you are secure in Christ, verse 1. Unless the Holy Spirit stops working, you are secure in Christ, verse 2. Unless you can figure out how to be unborn, you are secure in Jesus Christ, verse 3. Unless God is lying by describing your inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, you are secure in Jesus Christ, verse 4. Unless God is unfaithful to his promise that your inheritance is reserved in heaven for you, you are secure in Christ, verse 4. And unless God himself has a power failure, you are secure in Christ, verse 5. Beloved, we are safe and secure from all alarm. I'm not saying we aren't alarmed at times. And not saying that some of us don't let ourselves be overly alarmed at times. I'm simply saying we are safe and secure in His arms from all alarm. And thus you and I are able to live for Christ in a hostile world. A world which even might be visited upon us in the waning years of our life. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ our Lord. And so I exhort you as I exhort myself tonight, go out and live in Christ as the conquerors you are in Him. Our Father, we come to you tonight and we are needful people. It is so easy to get discouraged. So very easy. Discouraged when we listen to the news. Discouraged when we see all the advertisements of what everyone says we should have, ought to have, if we're going to have a fulfilled life. Easy to be discouraged and alarmed when we see the cultural abyss we seem to be sliding in. Alarmed when we see the growth of evil around the world. Whether it's the innocent unborn that are brutally murdered or it is people simply because they name the name of Christ or they will not bow the knee to a false god who are killed. Father, we could on and on. Loved ones, marriages that are breaking up. Lord, it just goes on and on. It could be very discouraging, very fearful and frightening, very alarming. And then on top of it, there are days when we, because we are still not perfected yet, we are still not totally conformed to the image of our Savior. We don't fully look like Him yet in our words, in our thoughts, maybe even in some of our deeds. We do not look like Jesus fact, maybe far from it. And it grieves our heart. And we wonder. And we ask. Has it really been real? Lord, we may sit by the deathbed of a child 
or a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a good friend. And so we wonder and we hurt and we ache. Yet we see these words written to people who were undergoing persecution. People who probably were somewhat worried and discouraged as well. People who are struggling with some of the same issues we struggle with because there is nothing new under the sun. And so they hear these wonderful words. Two pilgrims who are elect, chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. And not just chosen, but chosen in sanctification to be set apart by the Spirit for obedience by means of through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ over us and our sin. And so with Peter, we bless you, the one who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, for your abundant mercy, because you withheld from us what we rightly deserve for the things we have said and done, thought, word, and deed. You who have begotten us again to a living hope, not a dead hope, not a wishful hope, a living one that's there and is true, the resurrection of your Son. We know it's real because you raised him from the dead, and so we can see it. On those dark days, we can look up and we can see and know that just as you raised him, you will raise us. And it's an inheritance. It is precious. It's rich. It's valuable. It's immense. It's beyond what we can comprehend. And it is one that is imperishable or incorruptible. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It is held in reserve in a place that is much stronger than Fort Knox, much stronger than NORAD in Colorado. It's in heaven with you. We who are kept by your power, and not of our power, not, not of our efforts, not of our good works, but through faith, as you will finalize our salvation and glorify us in Christ. Father, may that encourage our heart. May as we study those truths more deeply, exegete them out more fully, they would not just be head knowledge, but they would become heart knowledge. They would become food for our soul to help us in these tough times. Father, we pray this for our good, the good of our families, for those around us, and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.